for Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of a son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I bore him a son at his old age. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. This morning, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 together. And as we do that, we're going to talk about sadness. The reality of sadness, and ask the question, is there a possibility of joy in the midst of our real sadness? I remember a couple of years ago, the first time I read the story Little Red Riding Hood to my kids, we had been given a copy of the book, uh, from a neighbor, and this book uh, went something like this. It was different than the one I remembered from a child, but my childhood, but it went something like this. Little Red Riding Hood was going through the woods on the way to meet her grandmother, and then in the woods she met a wolf, and the wolf, they talked, and then the wolf went on ahead, and then when Little Red Riding Hood arrived at her grandmother's house, um, she found this wolf in her grandmother's clothing and didn't recognize him, and they did the Oh, grandmother, what big eyes you have, and the wolf said, better to see you with, and what big ears you have, and what big teeth you have, and then the wolf jumped out and said, what big teeth to eat you with, and Little Red Riding Hood runs out of the house, outside, where she finds outside, in this version of the book, her grandmother and the woodsman, and so the three of them together chase the wolf off into the woods, and then the book ends with them having tea outside, celebrating that the wolf is gone. This is not the story I remember, and it's not really a happy ending because what happens to Little Red Riding Hood after the tea party's over? She's got to walk back through those woods where there's a scared, angry, shamed wolf waiting for her. Hungry wolf waiting for her. So I, I discovered that there are over a hundred different versions of Little Red Riding Hood. This is the one that I remember from when I was a kid. Little Red Riding Hood is on her way to her grandmother's house. She meets a wolf in the woods. They have a little talk. The wolf runs ahead and eats grandmother. And then when Little Red Riding Hood arrives at grandmother's house, they have their what big eyes, what big ears, what big teeth you have, song and dance. The wolf unmasks himself, eats Little Red Riding Hood, and then he is so full from his meal that he falls asleep. And while he's asleep, grandmother and Little Red are screaming out from the inside of the wolf's belly, and the woodsman hears them screaming. And so he comes into the house, he takes his axe, he cuts open the wolf's belly, pulls out grandmother and little red, and together they fill the wolf's stomach with stones, sew him back up, and then when the wolf wakes up, he's terribly hungry and goes to the river to drink water and then drowns himself. Now that is a happy ending, right? You have real sadness, real sadness, grandmother and little red get eaten, and also real joy. The wolf is dead. There's nothing else to be afraid of. There's real rejoicing. So what's going on here? Well, our children's stories have been neutered, and we've been taught. We've been taught to think that real joy is possible without engaging the real sorrows of this life. 
And this is extremely important for us because the stories that we tell and we listen to shape our imaginations and our imaginations shape how we live. And in the story that we're given in Genesis 21, we receive a microcosm of the true story of the world. So what is the story of Genesis 21, 1 through 7? This is my outline for this morning. We're going to look at the reality of sadness, the scandal of God's promise, and the interruption of joy. So first, the reality of sadness. Let me remind you of the story of Abraham. We first meet Abraham at the end of Genesis chapter 11, at the dead end of a family. He has no children. His family has forgotten who God is. They've forgotten what it feels like to say his name on their lips. He has become a stranger to God's promise and a stranger to God's joy. And then at the beginning of Genesis 12, he receives the call of God. And we see that the call of God meant that what felt like was a dead end wasn't. Genesis 12, the Lord makes these promises to Abraham when he is 70 years old. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will bless the world through you. And then in Genesis 15, God makes more promises to Abraham. He says, I will make your offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky. And then in Genesis 17, when Abraham is 99, he says, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And these chapters in Genesis follow Abraham's sometimes stumbling, sometimes rebellious, sometimes forgetful, sometimes faithful life. And 29 years after God's first first promise to him, Abraham is 99, Sarah is 89, she's visited by an angel who tells her that she will conceive and bear a son. And then when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, she gives birth to this son. Sarah was barren for 90 years, 30 of which she was living with this promise that God would give her children. 30 years of waiting. Can you imagine what this would be like? Saying to yourself, but God said I'm going to have a kid. He said that he is going to bless the world through me. And before we get to the joy of this passage, we must acknowledge the sadness. And this is something that all of the commentators draw our attention to that the joy of this passage is deeply connected to the sadness of a lifetime of barrenness. And we're not very good about being honest about our sadness. We spend so much time and effort avoiding sadness, avoiding the pain of loss. Philosopher Charles Taylor wrote that Western society's highest goal is to prevent suffering. And so when we receive it, we do everything we can to pretend that it's not there. And now, As we are experiencing suffering on a global level, this shared reality of the pandemic, we are all facing sadness. We all have sorrow. In the words of Ryan Adams, all sorrow can be summed up as I'm fractured from the fall and I want to go home. Don't we all feel that right now? The pandemic, all of its fracturing effects, I just want to go home. And it's so hard to just let ourselves be sad. It's so hard to just lament. Why do we need to acknowledge the reality of our sadness? Because there is no real joy without lament. So the Pixar film Inside Out deals with this so well. The director, Pete Docter, has said in interviews that in the earliest versions of the film, they had paired the character joy up with the character fear. He said that in the early versions of the script, 
he thought that in order to experience joy, joy, you had to rightly deal with the fear in your life. That fear was the issue. That fear is the thing that prevents us from real joy. But he discovered that sadness must be central to the film. He said this in an interview. There are so many books on how to be happy and what you need for happiness, and you want that for your kid too. We literally tell our kids, don't be sad. And we're wrong. We need sadness. We need to experience sadness in order to experience joy. I was once at a marriage conference with a Christian psychologist, and he was talking about this reality, and he said that for many of his patients, the work that he has to do is just get them to be honest about the sadness in their own lives. The joy of this passage is deeply connected to Sarah's deep sadness. And the same is true for our lives. You cannot have one without the other. And your sadness is real. The sadness of your neighbors is real. And until you lament, until you join God and his grief over the brokenness of this world and the real sadness of your own life, you will not be open to the scandal of God's promise. God's promise to Sarah is ridiculous. It's scandalous. To a 60-year-old woman, he says, you will have a baby. And through that baby, I will make everything that is sad in the world come untrue. And then when she is 90, 90 years old, she gives birth to that child. And the birth of this child is the fulfillment of all of the promises. It's the resolution of all of the anguish. Look at verse 1 with me. Look at verse 1. The Lord did as he said, as he had promised. There are no natural processes here. Those have failed. The joy comes only by God's promise. It's only by his grace. And the focus here is not on the announcement of the birth by promise, but on the kept promise to this old couple. It's not saying, look at the baby. It's saying, look at the God who keeps his promises. In Romans 4, 17, Paul, he's writing about the birth of Isaac, and he connects the scandal of this promise with three things. Do you know what they are? First, the creation of the world out of nothing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and justification by grace through faith. Creation, resurrection, and justification are all affirmations of the same reality. They point to the peculiar power of God to evoke new life by his grace, not out of life potential, but out of a hopeless situation. And this is the scandal of God's promise. It's based entirely on him and his good pleasure and nothing that he sees in us. He doesn't offer joy to you because of some potential that he sees in you, waiting for you to live up to it. Eternal life in Jesus isn't for those who show promise. The scandal of God's promise is that he brings it to bear in situations where there is no foundation for hope. Look at Sarah. She's 90 years old. God's promise to her is laughable, but he keeps his promises. And this drives us away from ourselves and to the God who is always found faithful. This miracle, and it is a miraculous birth, this miracle is not a violation of the natural order, but it is a concrete assertion that God is faithful to his promises. And the scandal of his promise leads to an interruption of joy. Laughter is always an interruption. Think about how it comes out of you. It's, it's an eruption of gladness. It reminds me of the song in Mary Poppins, you know, the I love to laugh, 
ha, ha. You know, the, the, the laughter song and all the different types of laughter that they talk through. It's this, this eruption of gladness that comes out of us. And the word for laughter comes in this passage five times. In these seven verses, we see it five times. First of the name Isaac, which means he laughs. And then Sarah in verse 6 proclaims, The Lord has made laughter over me. By the power of his word, God has broken the grip of death and hopelessness and barrenness. And the response is laughter. In John 16, Jesus says that babies, new life, new birth, babies are the sign and symbol and expression of joy. And laughter is the biblical way of receiving a newness which cannot be explained. And here we have laughter over a baby, unexplainable newness and joy. Sarah laughs. Barrenness has now become ludicrous. In John 16, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death on the cross, he says to them, You have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. William Temple, who is a 20th century bishop in the Church of England, wrote this. He said, it is not only that joy will take the place of sorrow, but the sorrow itself becomes the joy. The cross is not for Christians a stumbling block, which the resurrection has removed. It is not a defeat of which the effect has been canceled by a subsequent victory. The cross itself is the triumph. What was the devil's worst has become God's best. What was the devil's worst? The murder of the Son of God, Jesus Christ the promised seed to Sarah, has become God's best. In Christ on the cross, Jesus, he forgives our sins. He paid our debt. And through the cross and resurrection, he keeps the promise that he made to Sarah. So how do we apply this? Well, let me ask you this. How are you with other people's sadness? Do other people's sadness, does other people's sadness make you uncomfortable? Do others feel safe to be sad around you? And if you don't know the answer to these questions, ask somebody who loves you, are you safe with other people's sadness? Can people be sad around you? Are you safe to be sad around? And how about for yourself? How are you with your own sadness? Can you go there? Or do you do everything in your power to avoid being sad? And here's the thing. It's only as you engage with the real sorrows of your life that you'll be able to love your neighbor in their sadness. It's only as you engage with the real sadness of your life that you will unlock the potential for true joy. And as I've talked with other pastors, we're seeing how hard it is right now for people to really engage with their sadness. Some of us are falling into self-reliance and overworking. A lot of folks are working crazy hours relying on themselves. Some of us are binging on social media and news and Netflix, not turning to God. And this break that some of us have from our past busyness, some with more time on their hands, aren't using it to turn to God, but are rather driving deeper into distraction. We aren't taking our pain to Jesus. We don't know how to lament. Some of us think that it's wrong. And so we kick the dog and take out our pain on others. And if it's not coming out on others, it's coming out in self-destructive behavior. The stats on alcohol purchasing and porn use are way up. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ offers you a way into and through your pain and sadness. 
You don't have to avoid it. You don't have to stuff it down. You don't have to medicate it. You don't have to take it out on others. But the God of the universe invites you to join him in his grief over the brokenness of this world. He invites you to join the Spirit in its groaning, and he invites you to join Jesus in his tears. It's only as you enter your sorrows and you take them through the true story of Jesus' death and resurrection that he will transform them into joy. Friends, we must learn to lament and to take it to the cross, to submit our sadness to Jesus, and to wait for Jesus to bring resurrection. Look at Sarah. Sarah had to wait 30 years, watching all of her friends become mothers, and then grandmothers, and then great-grandmothers. And then the best thing that would ever happen to her happened. Isaac, the promised child, the one whom through God would save the world, was born. And the difference between you and Sarah, despite the obvious differences, the difference between you and Sarah is that the best thing that will ever happen to you has already happened to you in Jesus Christ. He is the promised child whom Isaac pointed to. Isaac was born so that Jesus Christ would be born. Jesus is a direct descendant of this boy. And he was born to die for you, to take your sadness and sin into himself on the cross so that in his resurrection he might give you the inexpressible joy of a new life. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is both the sadness, saddest event in human history and also the most joyous because his death and his resurrection are the true story of the world. And it's only as we submit our real sadness to his that he will grant us the real joy that we long for. In a Q Ideas conference, video a few years ago, um, a woman named Bobette Buster, who is a consultant who worked with Pixar on Toy Story 3 and I think a couple other films. Uh, but Bobette Buster, in her talk, she talks about the arc of storytelling. And she asks this question, what is the real issue of storytelling? In storytelling, what are we doing? And she tells the story of a man named Bruno Bettelheim. And Bruno Bettelheim wrote a book called The Uses of Enchantment. And he was a leading child therapist at the University of Chicago um, after being a survivor of the Holocaust. And what he discovered in his research is that the children in the death camps who had been read the real Brothers Grimm fairy tales, these children had been taught that one day you may be thrown into an oven. One day a wolf may come at your door knocking. But guess what? There's an unstoppable force in the universe that is there to support you. And if you keep going, you will discover the faith, the courage to go on. Friends, this is why neutered Little Red Riding Hood is so dangerous, because it isn't real. Friends, we need to tell ourselves and one another true stories. And that is what we have in the Bible. The birth of Isaac points us to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is where we see the true reality of the world that the world is in bondage to sin and it is filled with sorrow and anguish, but that in Jesus there is a new creation, that in him we will one day fully share in his resurrection, and that the joy that we experience now is just a foretaste of the day when Jesus will return and we will enter into a new joy, an eternal joy, 
erupting with laughter, for he is faithful to his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you tell us the true story of the world, that in your word you show us the reality of sadness, the scandal of your promise, and the interruption of your joy. And Lord, I pray for us as a church. Lord, would you help us to submit our real sorrow to you, that we might receive the joy you have for us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.